Okay, we are in Genesis 3, 1 through 13. If you'll remain standing. This is God's Word. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than all the other beasts of the field than the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. What do we know about God's word? That the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would send your Holy Spirit. This is a futile and pointless task if he does not come. And so we plead with you now, I plead with you that you would comfort your servants. They are listening. That you would convict us, that you would convert us, that you would teach us what it means uh, that we fell, that this world has fallen, um, but that you have overcome that through your Son. So we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You guys may not know this, but you actually have a ministry to the campus of the University of North Texas. I have been there for 10 years, and your church has been a heavy supporter of that ministry. And so, I know it may not feel like it to you guys, but you know, I got to baptize uh, one of my students this February, and so just know that part of your support allows me to give the gospel to students who have never known Jesus. And so, I want to say thank you to all of you. This morning, we're going to be talking about how things fell apart and why things are not the way that they are supposed to be. And I'm really only going to be focusing on the first nine verses of what I just read from chapter 3. But I want to discuss the fall under three headings. The enticement of sin, point one. The experience of sin, point two. And the estrangement from God. So the enticement of sin, that's found in verses 1 through 5. I want you to think about the passage heavily this morning, even if you've heard it a lot of times, okay? It says that the serpent was more crafty than all the beasts of the field. Now, a better translation of that word crafty is that the serpent was subtle. And here's what, what you need to know about uh, sin and evil. 
Sin will always and forever be at each stage of your life incredibly intriguing to you. That will never go away on this side of death. And here's the most interesting question of all to human beings that has ever been posed. Did God actually say? And you can fill in the blank for your own life. Throughout your entire life, even when you were a little boy or little girl, evil has been working against you to get you to undermine God's goodness. And every sin has its roots in getting you to question what God has said, and what undergirds that is a distrust in God's goodness. In chapter 2, where there was this sort of friendship with God, this face-to-face, in some sense mouth-to-mouth relationship with God, what we see in chapter 3 is something different, and this sort of subtle assumption that's lodged within the brain of Adam and Eve that sure... The world is good and God has shown you kindness, but what if there's more? What if God is holding something back from you? Now this is primarily why we sin. We are deceived into thinking that God really isn't all that good. And you can always know you're being enticed by sin whenever you come to the Bible and you try to change it or you question it or you assume that you have the ability to test whether it's good or not. Let me give you an example. Uh, Sarah and I have a daughter. My wife named Sarah. My daughter's name is Ambrose. She's three years old, and we have this rule for her. Our rule is that she cannot walk beside a road unless she's holding one of our hands. Okay? What if Ambrose went to school, her preschool tomorrow... And her little friend Kendall, she was talking about this rule to her friend Kendall, and her friend Kendall said, that's strange because I can walk by the road next to my house without holding anybody's hand, and nothing bad ever happens to me. You know, you can kind of sense with, with a child's mind and heart, you don't have to get her to be intrigued by questioning her parents' word, right? It's in her nature, that's part of what Genesis is teaching us. But what's so sad is that once she begins to question our rule for her, she begins to distrust in our goodness as parents. That we didn't put that rule in place for her further flourishing as a human being. It's the same with Adam and Eve here. Paul Miller says this, the the author of A Praying Life, Satan seductively gives Adam and Eve the inside track Here is what is really going on behind closed doors, such as the deadly intimacy that gossip offers. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. What what if most of our lives are lived kind of in continual gossip about God? Another commentator, Brueggemann, says, God is treated as a third person. This isn't speech to God or with God, but about God. God has been objectified. And once God becomes some, something or somebody that we talk about, we've already broken fellowship with Him. That's why it's very important that we ask the Holy Spirit to be present, because if what I'm doing up here is just talking about God, then that is very, very pointless. And we're not being confronted with Him or by Him. And I would venture to say that most of us live sort of a continual conversation that's somewhat reflective of gossiping about God. And hear the gossip in verse 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, which was true, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And what I want to pose to you is that that's the best lie in the world. It's the best lie in the world because it's true at every point in a sense. Their eyes were open, they didn't immediately die, and they did become like God, not in terms of reflecting Him in this world, but almost in terms of being in competition with Him, knowing good and evil. Now, I I want you to think about something just for a moment. Before sin entered the picture, Adam and Eve knew less. All of their knowledge was dependent knowledge. And we were never meant to, as human beings, we were never meant to have an independent thought. Just think about that for a moment. You can kind of see the danger of my daughter having an independent thought as she's standing in the middle of the road with cars coming, right? But can you see yourself trying to figure this world out without what God has said? Trying to figure your life out without taking into account what He said to you. We all do it. Church people, non-church people. This is one of the biggest things for me when I was in college, and a big reason why I'm still in RUF. You know, I had uh, serious questions about this, the Bible, because I was uh, involved in, in classes called the New Testament in my undergrad, and it may as well have been called trying to disprove the New Testament, because they were showing how the Bible wasn't lining up with Roman records And I was very uh, caught in disbelief and doubt. And I remember going to my campus minister's house, sitting on his porch, and telling him, I don't know if I can trust this. And I remember very specifically what he said. He said, Matt, at some point in your life, you're going to have to come to, to grips with the fact that this is either God's Word or it's not. If it's not, then you need to move on with your life and move on from Christianity. But if it is, if this is what God has said then you have to assume that it is right and you are wrong almost all of the time. And what I want to pose to you today is that, you know, Christianity is not ignorance is bliss. It's operating according to your design as a creature. Meaning, if you were to become a Christian today, very often what what happens with New Christians is their pure delight in God's Word. They just gobble it up. They trust it intuitively. Just like, was it baby McKenzie? She intuitively trusts her mother. She didn't like to be ripped away, you know? Um, well, that's, that's how it is with, with God's Word. And as we mature, as we grow up, God wants you to trust Him when you really, really don't want to. When it doesn't make sense to let me tell you a story. Um, I'm from Georgia, and we were, my wife and I were traveling from Georgia back to Texas, and we stopped in this small podunk town in, in Arkansas on the way back home one summer. And uh, we were looking for a place to eat, and we could, it was pretty rural, and we couldn't find anything. And so I pulled up my phone, and it said there were like three dominoes within a mile radius. And I was like, okay, uh, I like dominoes, I'll call them. And, and uh, Called, and this, this lady picked up, and she said, um, hello, this is Domino's, and I was like, well, can I, can I get the hand-tossed crust? And she said, what? And um, I was like, okay, I knew something was off, 
<laughs> so when I ordered the pizza, I went to go look for it, and I couldn't actually find the place. And I saw this gas station with this sort of domino sign that was like slightly hanging off, and I, I walk in, the only customer is this dude that had ridden there on a bike with like trash bags around the handles. And the moment I walk in, I think her name was Tammy, the, the, the lady that was behind the desk. She said, your pizza ain't ready. I was like, okay. Uh, so I walked around this tiny little store and bought like $10 worth of drinks to try to kill the awkwardness. And Tammy's like, okay, your pizza's ready. And she was leaning over the counter like this. And she was like, would you like any crushed red pepper or Parmesan? And I said, Tammy, I would like two Parmesans and one crushed red pepper. Can I have that? And no kidding. She lifted up, and as she was walking back to get it, she sang, Honey, you can have whatever you want. <laughs> uh, I just really love that story. Um, <laughs> listen, that's the lie of the serpent in Genesis 3. That we can have whatever we want. It's the reason why dominoes exist on the side of gas stations. And I think... The reason why I find that world so fascinating, why I'm scared of that world, why I partially love it, is because that's my inner reality every day. You know, if you get, if you get outside of McKinney, Texas, and you get away from your friends, and you see how rural, impoverished America lives, it will speak to you. Because this is the lie of evil, that you can have whatever you want. And that lie exists everywhere, right? This is what's so enticing about sin. And if you think about all the problems that exist in your life, that's where the root is. Well, why can't I have this? It feels good to me. It feels right to me. You know, that's the big trick of Christianity, isn't it? If I get exactly what I want, in some sense, that's hell. Hell is, hell is life exactly how I want it, just without God. It's unfortunate that most people under the age of 30 have been sold on this mantra that you deserve whatever it is you want, whether that's in school or church, the millennial. You know, the, the millennial, let me represent them for, for a moment. They are no worse than you, nor are they any better, but they have been sold on this mantra, at least on my campus. They've been sold on the mantra, you do you. And this affects y'all too. It just morphs into different forms as you get older Doing whatever feels right to you is lethal, right? I've talked to many of my students over the past 10 years who wish their dad had not done whatever felt right to him because it led them down an adulterous path and it ripped up their family. And they wish with all their heart that their father had said no to himself for the sake of the family. And what Genesis is showing these Israelites here is why life is so tragically broken a lot of people think that this book was written to the first century Israelites and it's an explanation of why they've been enslaved for 400 years and why they're wandering around in a wilderness. And guess what? Genesis is telling you the same thing. 2017. That this is where it all went wrong. This is where things fell apart and it started with the enticement of sin which is rooted in calling God's word and character into question and in our fallen nature... You have to believe this, especially you Christians. In our fallen nature, there is nothing more desirable than that. Questioning God's Word. Distrusting His goodness. 
realize how, how powerful that is, right? This is why every time someone becomes a Christian, it's, it's an absolute miracle. <laughs> it's beyond believable in some ways. You know, what Jesus did on earth uh, will live on into eternity because what He was doing when He started His ministry on earth, you know, the Holy Spirit drove Him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. You ever thought about how weird that is and what He was doing? What He was doing was that He was reenacting what humanity was always supposed to do and to be. That He, Jesus, obeyed in the very worst of conditions and we couldn't even obey in the best of conditions. And if you don't take that down into the very center of your being, it will ruin you, says the Bible. The enticement of sin, point to the experience of sin. Look at verses 6 and 7. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. A lot to talk about in there, but did you see how sensual the experience of sin is? The tree looked good, it tasted good, it got Eve's heart rate up. God's Word was good, too, but it was normal. Every day, kind of. But eating of this tree was new and exhilarating. You know, one, one commentator mentioned that this is why the Lord's Prayer doesn't say lead us out of temptation, but lead us not into temptation, because God knows that you can't handle it. One commentator says, once we're near the tree, our pulse begins to stir, curiosity flares, and our passions are aroused. In such a situation, our ability to make decisions is paralyzed. Y'all know that feeling? You know, I used to beat myself up over that feeling. The exhilaration at even the thought of disobedience to God. I used to say, if I was really a Christian, if I really love God, I wouldn't have that sort of arousal to, to disobey God. And I think what verses 6 and 7 are telling us is don't kid yourself. Jesus says, don't kid yourself. You can't handle temptation, so pray that God would prevent you from entering into temptation. What verse 6 and 7 teach us is that human beings have free will. You know, I'm a Presbyterian minister. We always get mis misrepresented for basically teaching that human beings are robots, and John Calvin was misrepresented in that way a lot too. But we have free will. We just 100% of the time will choose disobedience to God if we are left to ourselves. And again, this is uh, another reason why the Holy Spirit is necessary because of what theologians have called original sin, that we are bent against ourselves, inclined to self-destruction. And when we become a Christian, what God does is that He takes His Spirit and He implants inside of you a new heart that begins to have the ability and the capacity to choose the things of God. And this is the sad part, guys. You know, you were made, we were all made to find our deepest desires satiated and fulfilled in obedience to God. But that's not what keeps you up at night, right? And if you're at all honest with yourself, it's, it's disobedience to God that keeps you up. Are you going to have enough money? 
Are my kids going to turn out okay? What do these people think about me? What do, you, what do you think about when you can't sleep? Have you ever wondered where Adam was in this chapter? <laughs> you know, many, many scholars think that this is the absolute climax of the narrative in chapters 2 and 3, and Adam, the main character after this point, is completely aloof. And I didn't understand this until I got married. <laughs> and I realized how easy it is to check out as a man, Right? This is what drives your wives crazy when you're there, but you're not really there. And if you don't show up in your family, men, evil will overtake it. It will. And I love fantasy football and Netflix and good food and good drink, but you were not made to check out and disengage as a man. In a book called The Silence of Adam, Don Hudson says this, Every man knows all too well that this world is dangerous. He knows the risk of sticking his neck out, whether it be in relationships or work. And many men are convinced that the confusion of relationships and the uncertainty of the future can destroy them. And so they remain silent. And when men are silent, though, they deny the existence and goodness of God. But when I am silent, he says, I live as an atheist. I give witness to the belief that chaos is more powerful than God. The very sad part about the experience of sin is that the other side is always, always disappointing. And sin is a lot like fast food. It's a lot like dominoes in many ways. Um, it, it looks good, it's shiny, it's easily accessible, but it makes you feel awful afterwards. And the aftermath of going against God's Word is never as pleasurable as the build-up, nor as intriguing as the serpent made it seem. And this is the worst part, the knowledge of nakedness which leads to shame and then leads to us hiding from each other, ourselves, and then ultimately God. I had a seminary friend who struggled with pornography. And uh, he said, you know, my, my addiction to pornography is like, when I relapse, it's like setting off a silent grenade into the midst of my family and my community that no one knows about except me. And that can be said of all sin. Right? Never think that what we do in secret doesn't affect our communities because we bring that shame into the midst of those who we are in relationship with. And I want you to look at verse 7. When we sin, we cross a line we were never meant to cross. Their eyes were opened and they see themselves as naked. And they were disappointed in how they looked. God wasn't disappointed in how they looked, but they were. And so they feel ashamed of who they are and what their bodies have done and what they look like. And then they hide from each other, from themselves, and ultimately God. And they went from being face-to-face with God to hiding behind a tree. Look, if you want to understand yourself, think about this. You ever wonder why when you look into the mirror you're never satisfied? Ever? Ever? You ever wonder why we have social anxiety? Have you ever wondered why if you hear nine voices of praise and one voice of critique, what what voice do you go home listening to? This is what I think verse 7 is saying. This is why you don't like yourself. This is what happened. This is why we're all a riddle of inconsistencies to ourselves, says John Newton. And here's the deal. 
uh, I don't have to convince you of feeling all that I just said. You know well the disgust. You know well the shame. What is much harder to get you to believe is that God comes after you in the midst of it all. And He asks you that beautiful question. Where are you? Point three, the estrangement from God. There, you know, there may never be a more kind question posed to human beings than that question that God posed to Adam. Adam, where are you? Look, if I, if I ask you this question, if you knew somebody who you knew cared deeply for you and would actually listen, and you were sitting across the table from them, and they asked you the question, where, where are you? What would you say right now? You know, God never asks a question He doesn't know the answer to, right? He's omniscient. I had a seminary professor who was from Scotland, and he was visiting some pastor friends over in Tokyo, and he's like, you know, they really like their aquariums over there. And so when I went over there, they started to take me around to go see all these fish. And he was like, what was interesting is that I saw this one fish that was completely see-through, totally transparent. All you could see was his eyes. And I'll never forget what he said. He was like, it was as if God was saying to me in this like, sort of Scottish accent, Ferguson, I see straight through you. <laughs> and I think one of the things Genesis 3 is asking us in the subtext is, why hide? You're really bad at it. Why not be honest about where you're at with your situation and where you're at with God. It's okay. He knows us. I've sat with uh, so many students over my years, and I'm always asking, you know, I'm a pastor, I'm just like, so where are you at with God? Like, I really want to know. And I've gotten so many bogus responses to that question. Uh, some, Some of them tell me that they're struggling. I've never had a student once tell me that they were hiding from God, which would probably be more accurate. And when my daughter Ambrose disobeys, she won't look at us in the eyes. No one taught her how to do that, right? She knew how to avert her gaze. And it's because it's in her nature to ineffectively hide when she knows that she's guilty. And so we say, Ambrose, look at Dada in the eyes. I think that's what God is telling you this morning. Look at him in the eyes. And hear him ask you that question, where are you? It's the same when Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. It's it's a gracious way for God to say, look, I know what you've done. I know who you are. And though you stabbed me in the back, I still love you. Now what are you going to do with that? You know if this is true, he justly can require everything from us. There was someone who never hid from God, who never had the experience of sin, and he was tempted just as you were. And he didn't blame anyone. And he died naked before God. You ever wonder why Jesus died naked? It will not make sense to you unless you see that Genesis 3 is about you. That he was undoing all that had gone wrong to the very last detail. And I think part of the beauty of confessing sin and, and part of the beauty of coming clean with who we are 
is that we, we get to say, look, I'm a trap in and of myself unless somebody shows me a way out. And thank goodness Jesus has. God will not leave you estranged, lonely, and scared, and naked because that's where He left Jesus. He's not that type of God to you. Part of what we're saying when we come to the Lord's Supper is that we believe this. That we fell, but what's more, Jesus rose from the dead. And so as we celebrate this supper, we do come with this sort of somber realization that this is, this is what it took. This is what it took for us to actually answer back to God. We're here. And so many years later, that's what we do. Right, right here in McKinney, Texas, we, we're telling God, look, we're here and this is what it took. And we're joyful, but we know it costs you everything. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for these brothers and sisters in this room in the many ways in which they have blessed me and they don't even know about it. That's how Your grace operates. We don't even know how good You are. And so as we taste and see that You are good through this supper, that You would give us a little morsel, a little breadcrumb of what's to come for our future in the new heavens and the new earth where the fall will be like a bad dream that you undid everything that went wrong. Lord, I pray that you would bless this church. I pray that you would commune with us now by the Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Loved ones, let's respond in three ways if we could. If you're seated on the inside row, would you grab that black pad under the seat in front of you? And print all of the information requested there, then pass that pad down to everyone seated on your row. Our ushers are coming to collect our morning offering. This is the opportunity for us to give to the work of the kingdom. So let me encourage you to give sacrificially, hilariously, as the scriptures tell us. And then lastly, we're going to remain seated to sing the better tune, hymn number 500, Rock of Ages. Let's sing. <laughs>